Well, good morning. good morning. It's great to be before you this morning. And I always like to start with questions. So my question for you this morning is, has anyone, you, by the way, you don't have to answer unless you want to. It's okay. More of a rhetorical. But has anyone publicly ever accused you of doing something that wasn't true? Has anybody ever said anything that was not true about you? Spread a rumor about you that wasn't true? Maybe something that ruined your reputation? Maybe something that there wasn't much you could do about? All you could do was verbally defend yourself, but you were still feeling the results of that accusation or the effects. Maybe someone at school spreading something wrong about you that you didn't say. Maybe even your spouse accused you of doing something that wasn't true. The question for us this morning is, how did you handle that? What did you do? What didn't you do? What did you say? What didn't you say? True or not, once the information is out there, and then we start to defend ourselves, and we start to clear our name, and then we start to fight the suspicion, and then we start to tolerate the scorn, it's really a, a horrible predicament. For those of you that have been there through that, you, you understand this. And what's even worse is that there's always people, there's always going to be somebody with little or no information that is going to take that information and retaliate against you by either shunning you or even worse, continuing to spread those false rumors about you. It really is terrible. At the end of chapter 24 in the book of Acts, we find that Paul has already been serving time. He's been in prison for two years for a crime he didn't commit. The Bible tells us that at that time, he was serving under a guy by the name of Governor Felix. And after, at the end of chapter 24, it tells us that the Governor Felix succeeded Governor, I mean, Governor Festus succeeded Governor Felix. And that's where we pick up the story. Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Open up your Bibles or it'll be uh, on the screen for all of you sinners that don't bring your Bibles to church. <laughs> I love you guys. Chapter 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus, Governor Festus, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them. Who does that? They're in a court of law, and hey, do me a favor. So there's no law being practiced there. To have Paul transferred back to Jerusalem, for they were preparing to ambush an ambush to kill him along the way. Keep in mind, he had been in prison two years, and these guys are still plotting against Paul two years later. To, I mean, talk about trials and tribulations. I mean, these guys know how to hold a grudge. And once again, Paul here is facing some strong opposition. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, where he was escorted to stand before Governor Felix, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders, he says, come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Again, think about this. He's been in prison for two years, and he has no charges brought against them so far. Do you get the feeling that they're just trying to keep him in jail so they can find something on him to keep him in jail? After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court in order that Paul be brought before him. And when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him. But here's the key. Here's a clue which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law 
of the Jews against the temple or against Caesar, which were all the charges surrounded those three things. And Festus, again, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges there? So keep in mind, we've studied in the past where Paul was in trial in Jerusalem and they couldn't convict him. So they send them to Caesarea to stand trial before these governors. And now the governor is saying, hey, why don't you go back to Jerusalem and they can try you there? Makes no sense. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have done, I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has a right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. I think it's easy to see here that there's a lot of favoritism. There's a lot of... Um, biases going on in this trial i mean this isn't by any means a fair trial the governor knows because paul tells them you very well know the governor knows that paul is innocent but he won't declare an acquittal instead he has proposed a change of venue which involves an illegal action an illegal jurisdiction to hand paul over to the jews indeed is to grant the jews a favor and the only way for paul to really overcome these failings and these proceedings, which are in the hands of the lower court right now, is to appeal directly to the imperial court, which was the right of every Roman citizen. And by doing so, Paul right there and then by saying that just stops the judicial proceedings. So think about this for a second. How does Paul do that? We've been reading and studying and, and talking about Paul and all the trials he goes through, through and all the injustices he goes through. And we see Paul as this super Christian that I can't possibly relate to because he's, he's Paul. How does he do that? How does he, he doesn't crack under pressure. He doesn't sin in his anger. And in all circumstances, the whole theme of the book of Acts, through the trials, what I find fascinating is through all of it, Paul, in every circumstance, preaches Jesus. How does he do that? Well, like we just sang about this morning, Paul had gone to this point in his ministry that he had surrendered to God's design. Paul had raised his white flag. Paul had surrendered to God's will and purpose and plan for his life. And he understood that the word perfect was not perfect in Paul's eyes, but it was perfect in God's eyes. He understood that his troubles were temporary. He understood what God was calling him to do. He understood that it wasn't going to be easy. And he said yes anyway. Paul raised the white flag. Paul surrendered. You know, the, the word surrender is really important to understand what it means. It means to seize resistance. It means to submit to authority, to concede, to yield, to lay down, to give way. And you want to know what the opposite of surrender means? To resist or to withstand. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to those more. Because when it comes to God's plan for my life, I tend to resist and withstand more than accept and submit and seize resistance. 
You guys may recall from last week, Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Pastor David talked about it. He said that the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And it was great because if God can speak to Paul about taking courage, then we can take courage in our struggles as well. But what you see here, the rest of the scripture, the last part of the scripture, where he tells him that he must testify in Rome, really it was God's divine plan to have Paul testify in Rome. So by Paul appealing to Caesar, Paul is really just retaining God's divine plan for his life. And he understood that God was in charge of his personal destiny. So when Paul appeals to Caesar, he sets the direction for the remainder of the book. And it shows us how the Apostle Paul reaches Rome. And Luke here, who's a writer of Acts, is really just setting the scene for this climatic speech that Paul is going to have before this very important king by the name of King Agrippa. So here we find that Paul is just moving according to God's plan and according to God's program. But it took Paul having complete trust in that plan to be able to surrender to it. And like it would be for you and me, I have to imagine that for Paul, it wasn't easy. It required Paul to exercise faith, to exercise courage, I mean, to, to show integrity, discernment, and sh there were so many things that it took. So the question for us is when someone wrongs us or speaks bad about us or says something or accuses us of something that we didn't say or commit, how do you react I haven't met a lot of people that are serving time in prison for a crime they didn't commit. But I have met a few people that whose reputations have been ruined because of what something that was said that wasn't true about them. Or something that they were falsely accused of or something that they didn't do. You know, the natural thing for us is to get angry, to push back, to retaliate. But we have to be careful because sometimes that natural response can have serious consequences in our life, especially if the accuser is someone who has power over you. So Paul recognized that surrendering to his design meant that he had to make a choice every day. And, and it is the same thing with us. Every single day, we have to make a choice. Do we focus on himself, Paul, or does he focus on God? Does Paul focus on his problems or God's purpose? It's the same with us. Do we focus on our problems, which leads to self-centeredness? My problems, my issues, my pain, my struggle? Or do we focus on God and others? Paul surrendered to his design. And God knew that God, and he recognized that God is faithful. God had seen God be faithful, was faithful in Paul's life. He knew that he was faithful in the moment, and Paul knew that God was going to be faithful in the future. And Paul understood that despite the unfairness of this sinful world, that God is perfectly just. Psalm 9 tells us that the Lord is known by his acts of justice. Revelation tells us that, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So throughout scripture, God is said to always be just and perfectly so. But just as it declares God's perfect justice, it also declares that God is always good. In fact, David cries out to God in Psalm 86, and he says, you, Lord, are forgiving 
and good. So despite the unfairness of this world, we can always know that God will never act inconsistent with his character. He is always just, and in everything, and I mean everything, he is good. He will never treat us wrongly or without regard for our best interest. Remember, it was Paul himself who confidently said in Romans 8.28, a scripture that a lot of us know well or have heard of, that in all things, meaning every single thing, all things, good and bad, God works for the good of those who love him. That is why Paul was able to deal with all the inconsistent injustices and unfairness in his life. Because he expected these things. For Jesus had warned him about this. He told him that they were to come. So when he faced these situations of unjust and unfairness, he accepted them and then he pressed through them. That's what helped Paul. You know, I read this excerpt from Our Daily Bread, and you guys can get it. It's online as well. But they, they, they post something every single day, and this is one of those. And it caught my attention because it says, so many situations in life shout, not fair. I observe Christian couples who struggle to have babies while others are blessed with children, and then they abuse them. I look at families whose children are all alive and well, and I go through life without one of mine. And that one hurts me because I have a niece who just lost her eight-year-old son and probably thinking the exact same thing right now. God, not fair. I see friends who long to serve God but can't because of health issues. And it's then that I must go back to the basic truth. We are not arbiters of fairness. God is, and he knows far more than we do about his plans and his purposes. The question, you see, isn't about fairness. In the end, it's about trust in a faithful God who knows what he is doing. Folks, life will never look fair. But when we trust God, we always know that he is faithful. You know, the message from Paul And from the entire New Testament church in the book of Acts, it's really this, that life is not always fair, but God is always faithful. The Lord promises us to never leave us nor forsake us in times of injustice. He promises that he will be there through the whole ordeal. So Paul knew that God's God's faithfulness meant that God would be his protector and he knew that he would be his defender. And God assures us of that as well, that he's going to protect us when we trust in him. He is our security. In fact, Psalm 5, David reminds us that he will destroy those who speak falsehoods against us. And in our culture of accusations and falsehoods, remember who your shield is. Remember who your protector is. It is not man. It is God. So Paul knew that God was faithful is faithful, and will be faithful. And the other thing that's amazing to me through this study is that Paul retained his integrity through the entire thing, through the entire time, through the entire experience. In fact, Governor Felix kept waiting for a bribe from Paul for two solid years, time after time, meeting with Paul, hoping to break him down and get the bribe. Paul, not once, he never succumbed, he never stooped to save his neck. Paul modeled his commands to three of the churches. In fact, all of the churches. 
Paul was an experienced while in prison and modeled this for the churches that he was writing to during that time. In fact, to the Colossians, he writes, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. To the Ephesians, he said, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. To the Philippians, he says, whatever happens, whatever happens, good or bad, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul was the example for that. Through it all, Paul kept embracing the truth. He never resorted to attacking his accusers or the officials. He handled himself with integrity, with fairness, with respect. And sure, I have to believe that Paul got angry through all of this. And after all, it was, it was an injustice that was done to him. Because anger is a real emotion that we feel, and it's okay. It rises up when we are falsely accused of something or when someone says something that isn't true about us. But the challenge is to feel that anger and not sin in the midst of that anger or not sin in response. And folks, let me tell you, that's hard for me. I imagine it's hard for you, which means that we need God even more, which is why we have the Holy Spirit, because it's going to take great control for us to be able to overcome that. So we need to be seeking the Holy Spirit at all times, which is why Paul said in Galatians that since we live by the Spirit, let us keep step with the Spirit, daily asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us. A few uh, years ago, we had a very well-known ethicist come to Canyon Hills to speak about some current issues that were facing our nation. In fact, we put out a, a sign out and the marquee sign out in the front, and uh, we had all kinds of controversy as a result of that on social media. But nevertheless, the guy came, and we had some great discussions about some current issues, and I learned something during that discussion. I learned about the ad hominem argument. And for those of you that don't know what that is, basically this argument is when you avoid the genuine discussion of the topic at hand, and instead you resort to attacking the character or the motive or the attributes of the other person making the argument. You know, ad hominem attacks are basically made out of desperation when the, somebody can't find the counter argument. Well, when someone speaks bad of us or falsely accuses us of something that we didn't do or say, that's what we do. We resort to verbally attack, not all of us, but we resort to verbally attacking our accuser. I mean, we, we do this all the time. Think about a time where you were arguing, really arguing. I mean, you were a heated discussion with your spouse and you said something like, well, at least I don't, bam, and there you go. Or at work, somebody says something wrong about you and somebody comes and says, hey, so-and-so said this about you and you know it's not true. And instead of fixing it, what do you say? Well, so-and-so is full of it or they're dumb, or they don't know what they're talking about. Paul not once resorted to that. He was always respectful. And you know what's again amazing to me, that theme, that in all of it, he always preached Jesus. Back in uh, 1987, I had been married for less than a year. I don't know, for those of you that don't know, I got married very young, and I had a child very young. My first job to try to provide for my family was working at a convenience store. And uh, I was about eight months into that job and everything was going well. In fact, the manager was talking to me about going to, to training so that I can become like an assistant manager. So I was looking up and thought I was uh, doing things well. However, I was barely making ends meet. 
I guess I, you could say that I was poor at the time. But everything was going well until money started to disappear from the store. So they made all of us take a lie detector test, which I passed with flying colors. But at the end of the day, money was still missing, and they needed a scapegoat. And guess who the goat was? This guy. I was fired for what they called inconsistent sales, implying that somehow I stole that money, which I knew wasn't true because I was innocent. Yet there was nothing I can do. I told you I really needed that job. I didn't know what I was going to do. To say that I felt helpless and hopeless was the least of it. I had no recourse. I've, I've, I, had to, I felt these people had this power over me. I didn't know what to do. How was I going to provide for my family? I was already having a hard time making ends meet. What now? What does my outlook look like? So I'm like, okay, God, I know you have a perfect plan for my life, but I'm having a real hard time seeing it right now. I'm feeling the pain. And at the end of the day, God, I have rent and I have to feed my kid. So explain to me how this is part of your perfect plan for my life. To say that I was upset was to be downplaying it. I was upset. I was resentful. I was doubtful of my future. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I had no recourse. Started praying for a job. I had a choice to make. Like we all do when things like that happen in our life. We can either choose bitterness, resentment, and anger. I could try to hurt the people who hurt me, which some of us are really good at. I could speak badly of them, call them names, whatever language you may use. Remember, I did nothing to deserve this. I would have been justified to act and be the victim. But I chose to go home and let the experience shape me. Has anybody here ever done a life graph, and a life graph where they, they, they list and they, they plot all the important events in your life, and you just go throughout your life, and you point out, you know, this was bad, this was good, and you do this life graph. And I did mine a few years ago, and then you know that I list this now, not then, but now I list this as one of the best things that ever happened in my life. Amen. Had I not gotten fired... I would have not moved to California. I wouldn't have gotten a better job. I wouldn't have got, been able to start a business. And I wouldn't be before you here today. So guess what? God had something better for me. Yeah, I got fired. I had low self-esteem, low confidence, scared. All those things I already told you. But God had something better. And it is the same thing with you. I know it's not easy to raise our white flag. I know it's not easy to fully surrender to God and trust that he is faithful and to keep your integrity in the midst of all these wrong things that happen to us, of a, the midst of all these storms of life. But when you do, when you trust in God and his plan for your life, I have found, and I'm here to tell you that God hardly ever says no to your prayers. It is in my experience that God, through my prayers, tells me, yes, not yet, Carlos, or I have something better for you. Through my prayers, I felt God was saying no. He wasn't saying no. He was saying, I have something better for you. Another thing that is really interesting about this story is that when you read the story, 
it's really easy to pick up on the injustices done to Paul. It's easy to pick up on what made Paul persevere and, and what made Paul special. And in fact, sometimes it's really hard to relate because he's, he's a super Christian. But then again, at the same time, we, we take courage from his, his example and all the things that he went through. But my reality as I read through this, and perhaps you can relate, is that we don't often see the part that we play in the unfairness or the injustice or the bias. You know, at first glance, we read it, and I can't relate to Governor Felix or Festus. They prolonged Paul's, you know, court case, and they showed favoritism to the Jews. I can't relate to that. I'm not in law. And I can't relate to Paul's accusers, you know, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders, when they were judging and accusing Paul of something they didn't do. I, I really can't relate that. But when you really start to think about this, if I'm honest... I'm a little like Governor Festus. I'm a little like Paul's accusers. I, I, I've shown favoritism before. I've judged others before. I just judge you for not bringing your Bible to church. In fact, we do it all the time. We form opinions and biases against all kinds of things. A person's education, a person's economic status, a person's looks, their wardrobe, their social relationships, their job, their status, their position, their prestige, their earthly honor, and on and on and on. I mean, if we didn't judge others, you know, there's statistics about how we judge people. Tall people get paid more than short people. Blondes get paid more than brunettes. Workers who work out get paid more. Basically, handsome people get paid more handsomely, statistically. So if we didn't judge or show biases, then why would those exist? Yet Paul himself says in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter... Well, I guess it does matter. But in this case, he was talking about something different. It doesn't matter what race or color you are. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to his promise. Basically what that means is very simple, that we are all created equal, and it is in our best interest to treat everyone equal regardless of their status. Ultimately, we have to remember that God loves us all the same because he was our creator. He is our creator. And he did not create junk. So to fully surrender to God's design, to raise our white flag, also means that we have to work hard to surrender our partiality. That we are careful not to show favoritism or to judge and accuse others. And to always watch what part we play in any of that stuff. Raising the white flag is an international symbol of surrender, especially in times of war. We know that. And it's hard for people to do. When you submit to your captors, it says that you no longer want to, sign, uh, want to fight. When we raise our white flag to God, here's what we are saying. We are saying that we choose God over our own ability. When we fully surrender to God's design and plan and will for his life, 
We are saying that we are going to yield to his ways instead of mine. That we are going to replace our selfish desires with God's desires. And here's a very important key term of the agreement. That we don't get to write the terms of the agreement. You don't get to negotiate your surrender. You accept God's plan for your life. And here's what it looks like in our daily lives. Jeremiah 4.4 says, Oh, people of Canyon Hills Friends Church, surrender your pride and power. And here's what that looks like in our daily life. That means saying I'm sorry when the Spirit of God reveals that you've hurt someone with your words or your behavior. That means that you give generously to your church instead of keeping the money to spend for yourself. That means that you get up earlier so you can spend some time with God's word and then you can pray when all you want to do is sleep. That means that you obey Christ in an area that I know and you know will not be popular with your friends. That means that you step up to a ministry, to get involved in a ministry because God, and you know God is already asking you to do so. Or that also means that you might step down from a ministry because God is asking you to do so. That means that you set boundaries in your relationships as God leads, even when you know it's going to hurt the person you love. Ultimately, you understand that you are not surrendering to this rule maker, but you are surrendering to your maker. So where is God calling you to surrender today? What is God calling you to surrender today? Is it a decision that's been kind of nagging in the corner of your mind? You know it's not going to be popular with your kids. Maybe you want them to give up social media and you're going to be really unpopular at home. Maybe you're going to be unpopular with your friends or your coworkers. You know, raising the white flag is not easy. It's going to bring about some anxiety, but you have to know that surrendering to God's leading is where it will lead you to a genuine place of peace, which is what all, we're all looking for, is peace in our life. Yet we try to find it in all different areas, and all we have to do is raise our white flag and surrender to God, and that is where genuine peace exists. Because let me tell you, we're not in control anyway. And every time we think we are, something happens to remind us that we're not. Laying down our pride and our power brings you hope because God will bless that obedience no matter what circumstances may come. And you don't have to raise your white flag visibly. I mean, we can submit to all God's design and and we can submit all of our cares and we can submit all our concerns to God and I just encourage you this morning to just let it go let all of it I mean let let all of it go just give it all to God just fully surrender to his design God sees your white flag when we do that it doesn't matter who else sees it between you and God in fact the only one that matters is the one that can truly save you And that is our Heavenly Father. Will you pray with me in closing? Father, this is all about you. Your word speaks truth into our life, Lord. You promised that. 
It's powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to penetrate even the deepest parts of our soul. So Lord, because of that, I know that you're speaking to your people right now and you're asking them to respond and to surrender all to you. Whatever that may look like in every single person's life, you're calling them and you want more from them. You love them and you're requesting that they just seek you wholeheartedly in everything they do, everything they are, everything they say. So Father, right now, for those of that are seeking you more, Father, I ask that you would just come before them and that you let them know that they can take courage, not only from Paul's example, but what you're personally asking them to do. May they recognize that you are faithful and that you have a perfect plan for their life, that you will never leave them nor forsake them, that they are highly favored. Father, that you didn't create junk that you are their creator. Lord, so as they walk out of this place, that we walk out with a confidence knowing that you are with us, that you will fight our battles, that you will punish our accusers, that you will give us the strength to persevere. Lord, we take courage from that. We take courage from your word. We take courage from each other. We take courage from this place, ultimately for your glory. And it is in Jesus' name I pray, amen.